0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media
1: Incorporated
2: do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. (laughs) As we build these better buildings, sure, things are going to get more expensive, but it's not a runaway thing. People should be comforted by the fact that a lot of this is driven by affordability. As much as we see it slipping away, affordability is a key driver. And when we hit a number, and when you look at Toronto internationally, it's expensive, but it's not in the top few percent of what it costs to live. I think it's appropriately priced for where it sits in the hierarchy of uh, great cities in the world.
1: Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness-related issues. On today's show, we're going to discuss lessons learned in apartment development. Then we'll explore the natural treatment of depression. We're also going to find out about the top Middle Eastern recipes. And lastly, we're going to learn about the psychological impact of being a sex worker. But first, a bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter. But we'll deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. I'd like to welcome our first guest, Mitchell Abrahams. He's the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show, sir. Nice to be here again. This show we're gonna discuss what it is you've learned. In the process of building apartments in this city, because like anything, like any process, like any project, it's a learning experience as well as the actual task, right?
2: I'd say uh, what I've learned and what I continue to learn day after day as we uh, work our way through ongoing projects, new projects, and deal with changes uh, that are ever happening in this city.
1: Yeah. And like any process, there's parts that run smoothly and then there's parts that don't. And I think our listeners will be really interested to hear You know what's working in terms of like in your process of getting approvals and dealing with various levels of government and and actually not even just the government, the actual building of of the structures, what's working and what isn't and what could be easier and what do you wish and how would you do, how would you change things going forward and, you know, all that stuff that comes with a learning process. So let's start with something we were discussing, you know, before we came on air, and that is the approval process and what steps are
2: taken when you're building? It's interesting because one would think as you drive around the streets of Toronto that projects should be easier to uh, get approved these days, because there's so many things going on. And everybody's done this so many times, both city planners and urban design people and city councillors and developers and construction uh, trades. You'd think we've got it figured out. But what I find challenging at times is that every time you bring a new project forward, almost everything in Toronto is a rezoning. um, And almost every rezoning becomes a cat and mouse game of trying to figure out how do we get as much as possible within the framework on this site. And for some unfortunate reason, there seems to be a counter uh, side, which is uh, how do we limit these greedy developers from uh, building as much as they want to on a site rather than people working together and saying, how do we figure out how to build great space for people? How do we get great places for people to live? And let's talk about design and let's talk about fantastic apartment layouts and those type of things. And I find those things come to the forefront far too rarely. I think the other frustration you might, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, the city
1: is pretty much drunk on the charges that they're getting from developers because otherwise they couldn't make their
2: ends meet. I mean, isn't that the truth of what's going on in this city? It is complicated to understand, so I don't want to weigh in on a particular okay. uh, sort enough. of drunk, but I, I always yeah, do question.
1: That, that was my hyperbole. But I, I mean, you know, it, it's not a secret, all right? I mean, the developers are funding a lot of the budget.
2: Let's pick a round number. Development chargers per every suite built in the city okay. are in the range of $25,000 a suite. Holy cow. Right? So yeah. if, if you've got, you know, uh, 20,000 suites a year, that's a lot of money. Add to that Section 37 charges, parkland dedication or payments in lieu of parkland in certain cases, school board charges. We're talking millions of dollars per typical high-rise building that is going up in the city as you drive by that are going to city coffers. And I guess the question is to many of us is where's that money gone? Because it seems in lots of neighborhoods after extensive development takes place, the call still seems to be we don't have enough infrastructure. And I think the question that a lot of us ask, both in the development community and people on the street are, wasn't this money supposed to go for upgrading the infrastructure in the areas where all this development is taking place? One would have thought, right? I mean,
1: I think the the short answer to that is for many decades, the politicians traded off not keeping up with the infrastructure by keeping property taxes down to the point where single family dwellings, people who had been in homes historically for a long time could stay in their homes. Now, obviously, that's a good thing, too. You want to keep people in their homes. But had they actually raised taxes in a way that was necessary in order to cover the infrastructure costs,
2: we wouldn't be in this mess where they have to make it back on the development side. And I guess the challenge comes in more mature neighborhoods now that have been extensively built out. Right. You know, you're now lacking infrastructure, but you have many more people living there. Right. And who are you going to charge to actually do the upgrades that in some cases are now needed, right? Right? So you need schools and you need new sewers and you need a number of of things to get done in older uh, neighborhoods. There's more demand of services in those neighborhoods. And in some cases, there are only 10 or 20% of the developable land left. Right. Uh, Right? So, it becomes even more challenging because the past is the past and no one can go back and uh, sort of right. charge those past developments or they paid, but where's that money gone? So there seems to be a tremendous amount of pressure on those last 10 or 20% to say, it's your fault and you should be paying the load for everything that's wrong. And right. that's got a, a, you know some challenges to it as well.
1: Right, and now it's impacting you on, on a micro level on what you can do in your project. So for example, if those costs go up, then that means there's less money available to you to to put in the kind of stuff that you might want to put in your your units, right? To to make them more energy efficient or to make them more usable or spacious.
2: Let's just say that there are a number of factors that you can play with in a project, right? Right. Number one is how much sellable space or leasable space you have, Right. right? How many apartments can you build or how many condos can you build on a particular site? That generates part of what you can pay for The other part is pricing, and that's why we've seen this sort of upward pressure on prices because people need – when you're a builder of a high-rise project, I always think people sort of forget because we've got this new sort of condo culture, but we're stuck in some ways in a mentality of like an old-school mentality, right? So people easily get – if you're buying a house in a housing project, there's a builder. He's bought the land or he is buying the land lot by lot from a land developer, and he's building for you. That's his job, right? You're coming, you sign a contract with him, and he's building you a house. Right. There's this sort of mixed uh, message, uh, I think, with condo developers that they're anything more than someone doing that in a vertical way. Right, okay. They're, right? they're building houses for you, and those costs that are being put against them are really you know, forcing higher costs for you to buy your house, right? right? So once we take the condo development industry out of it, it makes me laugh because my, you know, we go back, we we joke uh, off air about uh, growing up, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, I was uh, an executive in the institutional real estate world, and I used to go out and buy office buildings and apartment buildings. But to my father, the Great West Life was buying apartment buildings and giving them to me to take care of.
0: Right? <laughs>
1: so <laughs>
2: right? right? Yeah. So there is no like voodoo to this whole thing. Right. We're building homes for people and we're or we're building apartments for people to call their homes. Right. So all these things are costs directly that need to be downloaded to someone, otherwise the project isn't viable. And if a project isn't viable, then you know a bank doesn't step in and finance it because they want to get paid back at the end of the day. So all these things are having upward pressure on the price of homes for the typical buyer or renter. And and what
1: lessons have you learned in the process, like sort of beyond the costing and and where where that goes? Like, what are some,
2: some takeaways? Well, first of all, one would think that after all these years of living in high-rise, people would know how to get you a fantastic apartment. Right. Unfortunately, there are challenges that stand in the way of that happening. Okay. Part of that is, uh, you know, the city and uh, planning professionals try to lay out a building that fits in a certain way on a piece of land. Right. There are rules. Those rules don't start from the inside out and start around how I build the perfect two-bedroom plus den apartment for you. They start with a site, and every site has a way where you can maximize the amount of space on it. That doesn't mean that maximizing the space gets you the best laid out apartment. Where we try to be different, and we try to build great apartments because we're going to own them for the long term, and we need them to be viable and rentable for the long term. And apartments that people are actually going to want. Right. So So let's talk about that for a second. There comes a time when the market's hot where there are a lot of people building condos, for investors to buy that are filling the gap of not enough rental being built, right? right. So everyone's trying to maximize the numbers and make it work, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily end up with the best departments as a sort of layout. Well, in a tight market, people rent it anyways. Of course. But at some point, if there's a more balanced market, people are going to be able to choose between something that really works well and something that's not as good, right, right? And that's when you can see the difference between when someone's thought long-term about creating great space and when someone's just responded to a demand. Okay, so what are the types of things that you would like to put in
1: apartments that you're building that you've sort of been prevented from doing just because of all these exigencies.
2: So first of all, let's talk about layouts. I'm, yeah. I'm a, I, know, a, I know a, obsessive so. about great layouts, right? right? I like two-bedroom apartments, which we call split two bedrooms, where the bedrooms are on opposite sides, and when you where apartments are wide and shallow rather than deep and narrow. So you get lots of natural light. To me, when you do those things, and you look around the world at well-designed space, when you can do that, you can make less space feel like bigger and more livable space. And right. people enjoy living there. And because the area is smaller... You can charge them less rent or you could sell it to them at a lower price because – things trade on a per square foot basis. Right. That's sometimes at odds with the the planning process because sometimes you're forced to build narrower and deeper su- suites to be able to get enough square footage to make a project viable. Right. I try to look past that and design from the inside out to get great suites. Energy efficiency is another sort of area that's sort of a, you know, it's a little bit of a hocus pocus game. People say you really should build something that's super energy efficient. Right. And then you look into it and you say, well, first of all, A lot of green planning has to do with using renewable resources, and a lot of that falls onto electricity. Well, we've got an electricity regime in this project at the moment, which is very expensive. So, when you run the numbers- You're talking
1: about provincially now, right?
2: Correct. So, when you run the numbers of what it costs to uh, heat and cool a unit using electricity as your source of of, uh, power, it makes sense from environmental perspective, but the economics don't make sense, and you always end up- falling back on the fact that gas is uh, inexpensive and we're going to have to go back with a more traditional system. Now, you look at it and you say, okay, first of all, high-rise buildings, you should know, are energy efficient to start off with. Of course, because of the densities. Right. right. And then there are ways to make them far more energy efficient. You build a, a skin and you use insulation to make the building tighter and you move to more modern systems where you bring in fresh air from the outside rather than bring th- fresh air in from the roof through the hallways and pump it through. So you can get a really energy efficient building. But to get to the real sort of the green things that we read about in terms of passive house and, uh, you know, a- and some really high end net zero buildings in a high rise basis, yep. really hard to do in Ontario because of the price of electricity. And I, and I think that's a challenge. That over time is going to have to get addressed one way or the other.
1: You know, when the green movement started, I was just starting the magazine. And originally, the context of my magazine was both health and wellness and fitness and all the rest of it. But there was a green element, too. And very quickly, what I learned was that without the government subsidies, the green alternative was so phenomenally expensive that there was only one cohort of consumers Who are willing to pay that premium. And those are the ones who are completely converted to the idea of being quote unquote green or, you know, or, you know, ecologically responsible. But for the average person, you're asking them to really dip into their pocket for something that is uh, neutral in terms of their life, right? Like they are, they're going to get their water. They're going to get shelter. They're going to get a place to live. It has to be heated. Who wants to pay more for that? Like, that's a hard sell unless you're, you know, ecologically committed. And I think now that there's been a change in the provincial government I think we're seeing people sort of view that a little bit differently like why did we do that was it is it truly efficient what are the real costs and and by costs I mean cost to employment
2: to business and we were discussing that right Absolutely I mean I think manufacturing in this province is challenged by the high cost of electricity and so is creating really energy efficient spaces to live
1: Right which impacts every aspect of what you do, because if it can't be manufactured in Ontario, that means you have to go farther to get the building, literal building blocks of whatever it is you're you're putting together. Absolutely. I mean,
2: and that in itself comes with the challenges of the world these days, because getting things from elsewhere seems to be including all kinds of other hurdles, like tariffs and those type of things. Exactly.
1: All right, I'm off my soapbox now. Let's go back and and talk about other lessons you've learned. We've only got a few minutes left. Mm -hmm.
2: So what else have you learned in the process? Well, listen, the one thing I've learned is that, you know, people are working hard to build great spaces. You're seeing more apartments being built than there have been in a long time in this province. Yeah. One of the fears is that everyone's just building luxury and the prices are going to keep going up and up and up. Right. The one thing I've seen is the market is really a determining factor of where things happen. So, as we build these better buildings, sure, things are going to get more expensive, but it's not a runaway thing. People should be comforted by the fact that a lot of this is driven by affordability. As much as we see it slipping away, affordability is a key driver, and when we we hit a number, and when I and when you look at num, at Toronto internationally, uh, it's expensive, but it's not in the top uh, few percent of where it costs to live. It's I think it's appropriately Priced for where it sits in the hierarchy of uh, great cities in the world right, I think we just need to settle into the fact that it's expensive to build new buildings, but that rents aren't going to run away over time people are going to realize that this is the what people can afford to pay, and everything will adjust for that I think the cost of construction will adjust for it because get, people get greedy on that side yep. I think that the charges the city can charge will will get tempered over time because people realize that that's an impact, and the rents that people are prepared to settle for will be commensurate with the fact that these are great quality investments that people want to invest in that are stable for the long term. So I would think that we're going to start seeing more and more good buildings and that though they're going to be more expensive than 40-year-old apartment buildings, I don't expect rents to run away like some people talk about.
1: Fantastic. Well, when we have you back next month, I'd like to sort of set up a roundtable, and let's get the government's perspective. And maybe we'll bring in somebody from council or somebody running for council and get their perspective on how they would fix things in the city. Happy to do it. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about the natural treatment of depression on the I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. like to give a shout out to our sponsor Purica. Purica wants you to turn its protein into your power. A blend of the finest vegan protein and the antioxidant powerhouse that is the pure chaga mushrooms. Purica Power features ingredients and enzymes designed to optimize digestion and absorption. Unlike many protein powders, Purica Power tastes great with water and mixes easily. It's available in chocolate, vanilla, and natural unflavored. From the Purica family to yours, Purica Power is a new way to make the most of every day. It's all part of the Purica commitment to making a positive difference in the lifestyle of its customers. Ask your favourite health food store for Purica Power vegan protein. Or visit Purica.com. Purica. Nature. Science. You.
3: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
1: Welcome back. My next guest... Ted Snyder, together with his wife, Linda Wolven, are the co-authors of Healthy Herbs, the family naturopathic encyclopedia, and also Sex and Fertility, Natural Solutions. They're also the co-authors of the blog, thenaturalpathnewsletter.com, where you can reach out to them if you have any questions. Welcome to The Tonic, Ted Snyder. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. We're going to discuss the top 10 herbs and supplements to naturally treat depression today, right? Yeah. So let's play a little bit of a game today, all right? Okay. I'm going to shout out. I'm not going to shout because I don't want to bust people's (laughs) ears, but I'm going to mention an herb or a supplement. And what I want you to do is explain what it is and how it might help the listeners and how much dosage and how it interacts, okay?
4: Sure, and Jamie, I just wanted to say when, before you asked me the first yeah. one too that the reason why this matters, right, is that the number of people suffering from depression is continuing to go up, yep. and it's, it's really time to declare the decades-long experiment with antidepressant drugs to be problematic and turn to something new because careful research has shown that, that drugs haven't diminished the rates of suicide with, amongst depressed people, and consistent research has shown that antidepressant drugs for most people are no better than placebos. But the problem is they're not just no better than placebos, they're actually Dangerous placebos because they have huge number of side effects. You know, a lot of people know that antidepressants cause sexual dysfunction and weight gain, but it's not often enough talked about that they're also associated with the same kind of gastrointestinal bleeding. They can cause liver toxicity, eye conditions, even osteoporosis, possibly diabetes, and and thoughts of suicide. So, this is a serious thing. And then you've got this whole bunch of herbs and nutrients that consistently get studied head to head with these drugs. And work just as well right. without these side effects. So. This this is really important for people to know that that there are these really safe, natural, well-studied alternatives. The
1: reason that I brought you on the show today is because I know that you know your heart and mind is is, <laughs> is tied to the research of these natural products, and I thought it would be helpful, you know, for the listeners to understand, you know, what the options are. Okay. but you know, I would stress, and I know where you're coming from. I would say anybody who has a doctor, who has medical care, should obviously consult with whatever medical practitioner or health practitioner they have before right. they try any of this. Make sure that there's there's nothing that they aren't taking already that doesn't contraindicate. Right. depression's a serious thing. And, of and course. You shouldn't treat it on your own. So. I know there's one that you wanted to start with, which I actually grow in my garden. Yeah. It's all over the place. You it, just don't recognize it. Exactly. Yeah. Lovely little white flowers. And that's St. John's wort.
4: Yeah. They're the ones with the, the yellow flowers. The, right. Right. Sorry. So yellow. Yeah. yeah. yeah so St. John's wort's a great example we are just talking about because this is the king of antidepressants, right? So we talked about herbs that have been studied against drugs, St. John's Wort has been studied against SSRIs, the leading class of antidepressant drugs, over and over and over again and consistently, consistently either equals those drugs or beats them with a way better safety profile. Just recently, like end of 2017, a meta-analysis, that's when you put together a whole bunch of studies, it put together 27 studies that compared St. John's Wort to SSRIs like Prozac. And when it did that, it found that St. John's Wort was as or more effective than those drugs and incredibly safer. 41% of people, so almost half the people had to drop out of drug studies because of side effects wow. compared to, you know, virtually none on St. John's work. So here's a herb that's proven head-to-head research over and over again mm-hmm. to, to equal, at least equal, or in most cases, beat these drugs, more effective, way safer. Hmm. So for most people that's probably your first choice, sir. And,
1: and St. John's wort is readily available in health food stores. What does it come in, like capsule form or yeah? The- form?
4: The best way to get it is a capsule, the dose that's most often used is 300 milligrams three times a day on an empty stomach. Right. Although there is some research suggesting that as little as 500 milligram works, but usually 300 milligrams on an empty stomach, it usually comes as a pill. It's usually standardized. As you said, for a lot of people in, in Toronto, it's growing. You see those beautiful yeah. little 4 petaled yellow flowers. But yeah, standardized pill from a health food store, 300 milligrams three times a day.
1: Okay. I know there was, an, in speaking with you before you came on the show, there's, what is it? I don't know if it's an herb or or you'll tell me, or it's a supplement, but curcumin, you said there's been some new research on curcumin. So so what is curcumin?
4: So curcumin is the active ingredient in in the spice turmeric. Oh, turmeric. Especially when you eat like, you know, Indian foods, you get that yellow color, the the turmeric. And one of the reasons that people in India have such low rates of of cancer and arthritis is because of this incredible ingredient. Curcumin is really exciting because it's probably right now garnering more research than any other herb in the world. The research for curcumin is piling up. And people know it mostly as an anti-inflammatory. right? But it's an incredible cancer herb. It's an incredible osteoarthritis herb. It's an incredible ulcer herb. It's an amazing diabetes herb. And what most people don't know is it's a really, really exciting depression herb. It's been shown in studies to be as good as Prozac. It works best on middle-aged people, more than elderly people. Oh, well, that's so, good to know. So if you're middle-aged... This well, is I don't know. You're looking straight at I'm me when at, you said well, that, right? I looked at you when I said the elderly parts. So. I know you did. <laughs> so it's good for middle-aged people. You take a gram of it. You've got to take it for a long time. It's like at least six weeks, a gram. It also improves drugs like Prozac when you add it to them. Okay. Another herb that is known for coloring yellow is saffron. Saffron's one of the herbs that we're most excited about right now, because it's also Piling up huge research on things like Alzheimer's, but also, really excitingly, the best research on saffrons on depression. So, saffron's that Persian herb. It's really expensive because yep. it's just three little stigmas. Threads from the daffodil. Out. Although, research is starting to suggest that the petals might work just as well, and that will really drop the price of, of saffron. Saffron's really exciting. It's exciting for Three reasons. One, it's been shown to be as or more effective than, than drugs like Prozac and research. It's also one of those rare herbs that can help both depression and anxiety. So if you're someone that suffers from depression and anxiety, saffron's a great choice. It's also cool because it's been proven research to help depression, anxiety in teenagers, not just adults. That's a tricky business in depression because antidepressants like Paxil have been shown to not be effective on teenagers and to increase thoughts of suicide. So finding a safe treatment for teenagers is powerful. Okay. Now, one that you, you mentioned to me, and I didn't even know what it was, so I'd like to know what it is, is 5-HTP. 5-HTP is short for 5-hydroxytryptophan. It's an amazing nutrient because it's almost like it's designed for the human brain and depression. Serotonin is the thing that's most responsible in most theories of depression for, right. for alleviating depression, but you can't take serotonin as a supplement. Oh, Tryptophan is an amino acid that turns into serotonin, but before it does that, it has to convert to 5-HTP. So it's closer to serotonin And it also passes into the brain across the blood-brain barrier way faster than tryptophan. So this gets in there fast for depression, so it's effective, but it works really fast. And that's the exciting thing about 5-HTP is it works faster than drugs. And a lot of people who don't respond to drugs, in fact, about 43% of people don't respond to drugs, will respond to 5-HTP. More respond, they have a greater response and a faster response. And tryptophan, we get,
1: you know, that's from like milk and turkey. It's the stuff that makes you sleepy, right?
4: Yeah, and it's available in, in things. Like soy and stuff. And it also works, but 5-HTP is way better.
1: Okay, and then the next one on the list is essential fatty acids.
4: So essential fatty acids are, are those omega-3s, omega-60s, like gotcha. flaxseed oil, and low levels of essential fatty acids are linked to depression. The two exciting things about EFAs are, like saffron, they've been proven to work in children. Wow. Um, so this is, this is really cool because it's hard to find a safe effective antidepressant for kids. The other cool thing about essential fatty acids is that in terms of adding them to drugs, like Prozac, to make them work better, mm-hmm. essential fatty acids have the strongest research for making drugs work better. So if you're a kid, kid or your drugs aren't working, that's a great one. Okay. Next on the list is B vitamins. So B vitamins are mostly talking about folic acid. Right. And folic acid does this tricky thing in your body. It donates a methyl molecule to neurotransmitters that they need to work as antidepressants. So folic acid, low folic acid linked to depression. It's another one of those that if things like Prozac aren't helping, adding like five milligrams of folic acid to Prozac can help it.
1: Okay, and tell me if I'm pronouncing this one right Rhodiola rosea.
4: Yeah, Rhodiola rosea. So, you want to dose like 340 to 680 milligrams of rhodiola. It works for depression. It doesn't work as well as some of the others. It's not as powerful as an antidepressant drug, but it's way safer. So, the safety profile is good. Rhodiola is a good one to take if you're feeling stressed, if your energy is low fatigue and depression sort of mixed roliola is a good hurt. Okay so we have two more left so vitamin D. Vitamin D may be especially useful for women who are depressed maybe more than men maybe according to the research it also has very strong evidence that it helps drugs work better and it's a great one to take if you're suffering from seasonal affective disorder so if you have SAD in the winter time not enough sunlight your vitamin D goes down it's foundational in um, seasonal affective disorder. 5-HTP can help that too Cool. And the last one on the list is probiotics. We included that one because probiotics aren't thought of for things like depression. They're thought of for things like digestion. But there's an emerging body of research that shows that probiotics help mood. And they've been shown to help depression, anxiety, anger. In fact, a study I was just reading this morning before I came here just came out that probiotics can stop things that lead to depression, like ruminating over negative experiences, that it actually sort of sets the ground for your brain not to be depressed. Really interesting new research.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming in today. Thanks, Jamie. And if anybody has any questions, where can they reach out to you and Linda?
4: Probably the easiest way is through our website, thenaturalpathnewsletter.com. There's a contact button there that you can reach us or access our newsletter or whatever. Fantastic. And you're going to come back next month
1: and you're going to discuss acupuncture as a pain treatment, right? Yeah. Fantastic. Great. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic.
5: And now the Soul Segment with spiritual medium, transpersonal therapist and teacher, Lisa Marvin. Through her use of tarot cards, your questions about love, money and career are sure to be answered. Hello. Thank you for joining us on Soul Segment. This week, we're gonna be looking at love and interpersonal relationships for the month of August using the Tarot cards. The first card that I'm gonna look at is the Four of Swords. This position is the energy that has brought you to where you are now. The Four of Swords is a really lovely card because it's very healing and gentle. It also shows that emotionally, you've been really doing some work whether you're aware of it or not. You've brought some healing, peace and calm into your life. This leads you to where you are now, which is the Hermit card. The Hermit is all about going inside of yourself to find the answers and then shining your answers out into the world for others to see and maybe even to learn from. The Hermit card is helpful because it allows you some quiet time to really find out some of the answers that you've been searching for that you might not have been able to answer in the past. The final card and what's going to bring you into the future is the Six of Wands. The Six of Wands is about creating your own victories. This is the perfect time when you figure out what it is you're looking for to take action and carve what it is that you expect from others and what others should expect from you. All in all, this looks like a very interesting month. Good luck, and I'm looking forward to connecting again with you next week. This has been the Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, please visit metaphysique.ca.
1: Hi, this is Jamie Bussin. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighbourhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. Are you recently retired? Do you own your own home? Are you looking for funds to pursue a passion project, to renovate your home, or finally to go on that European vacation? A loan from Home Equity Bank can help. A CHIP reverse mortgage is a tax-free lifetime loan for up to 55% of a home's value. Available to Canadians age 55 or older who own their home with a minimum property value of $150,000. Funds from a reverse mortgage can be taken out in a lump sum, scheduled payments, or both. And remember, a homeowner who takes out a chip reverse mortgage will never owe more than the fair market value of their home. Check out homeequitybank.ca for more information.
3: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer and a mother of three teenagers, my next guest is also the most popular columnist in Tonic Magazine, our cookbook reviewer, and my wife, Naomi. Hi, honey. Hi. So you've always got your finger on new cooking trends, and I know today we're, we're veering off into another part of the world for what is a very hot trend. What is it? What are we discussing today?
6: Today, we're going to tackle the Middle East.
1: Where everybody else has failed, <laughs> we're going to come in and succeed and tackle the Middle East. Yeah. All right. So that being said, where do you want to start?
6: So let's start big. I came across a cookbook recently called Feast, Food of the Islamic World. This is big. The author is her name is Anisa Hilu and she lives in London. She's originally from Lebanon and she's a cookbook writer, so this is her ninth cookbook. She knows what she's talking about. She decided that she wanted to do a sort of an encyclopedic cookbook to tackle the broad different cuisines of Muslims wherever they may be.
1: Right. And there and there's Muslims all over the world.
6: Right. So this cookbook covers, you know, North Africa, Middle East, South, Central Asia, Zanzibar, Somalia, Malaysia. Indonesia so it's quite broad it's not in the middle east in the way that you know people may assume okay and it's interesting because there are even different recipes you know different takes on the same recipe the way you know one country may Treat rice pudding versus another country, and so it's interesting because there's a lot of good stories and a lot of history in there when you read the cookbook. So it's big; it's 300 recipes, 500 pages. It goes way back, you know, starts at the beginning, you know, back to 650. You know, we're, we're talking about old recipes, and she's not trying to modernize them. They are doable, but they're not you know, a modern spin on a traditional recipe. They're just traditional recipes.
1: You know, we have a couple of these sort of encyclopedic cookbooks in the house. And when I try and do a recipe, and I don't really usually cook by recipes, but I find those books unwieldy. Like, is is this for everyone? What's the purpose in doing an encyclopedic cookbook?
6: It depends what you like. So, if you're just trying to figure out what to make for dinner, it's not really the cookbook for you. But if you have an idea, you want to try something new, or let's say you want to try rice pudding and you're looking for a few recipes and you like those flavors, you could look it up and see, hmm, this one looks good to me, or that one looks good to me. And so, for people who like choice and like to read the history and the context, great. If you're overwhelmed by choice, It's not good for you. Right.
1: So this isn't necessarily for picking a dish for Thursday dinner. This is more of a treatise, you know, talking about the history and and synthesis of the food.
6: Yes. And I think that's what she intended to do. You know, she thought that that was a gap. The author she thought that this was missing. And she actually traveled to all these different regions of the world to learn about their food before writing the cookbook. So it wasn't just something she did on on a lark. So it was important to her.
1: Okay. Anything else you want to tell us about the book?
6: Well, so it was interesting. I mean, I you know, the flavors are what you might think from the Middle East. There's for example date ice cream. There's a Ramadan bread which is from Lebanon which is a brioche like bread filled with seeds which looked very good to me. I learned about kebabs that are apparently from Turkey or the Ottoman Empire and they disseminated kebabs all over wherever they ruled and so it's not that other people didn't have grilled meat but that particular type of grilled meat and the name kebab is turkish so those are the kinds of things that i learned but the recipe for kebabs is pretty simple it's just got tomato paste garlic and spices so the history is interesting but the recipes are pretty straightforward and doable
1: so the next book that you looked at is not encyclopedic; it's more focused, right?
6: Yes, yeah, so it's really the opposite. It's called Palestinian Table by a woman named Reem Kassis, and so she wanted to focus in on her family's cuisine. She's somebody interesting. So she grew up in Jerusalem. She has a Muslim mother and a Christian father. She lived in the States and then to London. She went to Wharton School of Business and London School of Economics. So this wasn't, you know, her thing. But she decided that she wanted to write a cookbook and share the food of her family. The three generations, you know, with the cooking of her grandmother, mother, and herself. And so it's really focused on the cuisine of, of that region.
1: So what, what what did you learn from the Palestinian cookbook?
6: So again, the flavors are what you might think of from that region, but I learned a lot. She was talking about how dishes are sort of family style. There are certain dishes that are you know, tend to be fundamental and certain flavors. So she gives, for example, a Uh, nine spice mix which is all spice cinnamon coriander, pepper, cardamom, those kinds of spices. And that nine spice mix goes in a lot of the dishes and gives it that authentic flavor. She talked about the importance of bread and rice at the meals and how they use it. And there are certain dishes that, you know, this this sounded interesting. Like I learned that they have tahini and grape molasses spread, which is the PB&J of (laughs) the Palestinian region. Apparently that's what kids eat. And that they really like to stuff things. So pastries are stuffed or, you know, vine leaves are stuffed. They like putting things in other things. And so a lot of the dishes are like that. Stews, sauces, but they're not heavy. They're not fried and heavy. They're light. There's lots of vegetables, but a lot of saucy things too. So it was interesting. I learned things.
1: Was it a modernized cookbook? Was it the type of thing where you could pick dishes to make every day? Or was it more like if you wanted to put together a Palestinian meal, this is the way it would be?
6: You could do it either way. What she says is if you're having 20 people over, you can make a whole selection of dishes, or you can just choose a few for dinner. And some of them require long cooking time, and others not. It's really arranged, you know, from breakfast, lunch, dinner, big dishes, small dishes, whatever you like. But the flavors are just very Middle Eastern.
1: All right. So the next book that you're looking at is the other side of the proverbial and perhaps literal wall. This is an Israeli cookbook. Is that right?
6: Yeah. So this is a new one that I came across called Shaya called An Odyssey of Food by Alan Shaya, who is Israeli. And he has this interesting path. So he's born in Israel, moved to Philadelphia, then lived in New Orleans, worked in a restaurant there, moved to Italy, learned how to cook Italian food, then back to New Orleans, where he was cooking Italian food. Then he turned that into an Israeli restaurant. And I think now he's living in the States, or maybe he's back in Israel, I can't quite remember, but he knows how to cook all these things. So there's, so the recipes in this cookbook, they range from American, you know, Jewish traditional recipes, to Southern, to Italian, and back again, all with an Israeli overlay on it. So, a mix of things, which is interesting. So, schmaltzy potatoes, pastrami scrambled eggs, those kinds of things, Brussels sprouts with caraway and tahini, colored spanicapita. Colored
1: spanicapita. Yeah,
6: yeah. Date pancakes with rose tahini. But then there's also pizza pasta, you know, bolognese sauce, so it's a real mix, but what brings it together is his story. So each chapter talks about a different leg in his life or his journey and what it meant to him and how he came up with the food. So it's, it's a fun, interesting read, even though the cookbook's a little all over the place.
1: Yeah, we were joking around that, you know, really he should have named the cookbook The Wandering Jew because he's been all over the place, right?
6: Mm-hmm. But he clearly, he's learned a lot.
1: Are there any other books that you wanted to discuss today?
6: Well, I would also mention one called Golden, which is the cookbook that's produced by the owners of Honey & Co., which is a restaurant in London. They're Israeli, and they have another cookbook, which is about main courses, but I like this dessert cookbook. You you like the baking. It was just more interesting to me. I looked through this book, and I thought, okay, I pretty much want to make everything here. I just like the flavors, and I thought it was interesting. So they have all these different jams that have, you know, floral or citrus notes, like apricot and elderflower, black fig, cardamom, and orange jam. And they have sweet cheese buns with a ricotta and orange filling, salty sweet orange and tahini pretzels, baked donuts filled with lemon and lime curd, like a lot of yummy things. Breads from all over the Middle East, different because one of the authors has an Egyptian grandmother and who married into a Yemeni family. So it's it's really all over. And I, what I also thought was interesting was that they had recipes. Some of the recipes were vegan or dairy-free, and so it gives some flexibility. So all different kinds of desserts, from breakfast to afternoon tea to full desserts. But the recipes really sounded good to me. And I have heard other people say that they are very good, too. The recipes work.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming into the show today. You're welcome. We'll have you back next month to discuss more exciting cooking trends. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn about the psychological impact of being a sex worker on The Tonic.
3: And now, time for Pure Beauty. Learn all about holistic skincare and health featuring chemical-free ingredients. Here's naturopathic doctor and co-founder of Pure and Simple Beauty and Wellness Centers, Dr. Kristen Ma. Rosacea is a skin ailment marked by facial redness and broken capillaries. But it's not just a topical issue. It's aggravated by stimulation to our cardiovascular system and inflammation. This is why emotional stress is a common trigger for rosacea. In fact, the National Rosacea Society ranks emotional stress as the second most common trigger after sun exposure. When our bodies are under stress, they enter what is called a sympathetic state. At this time, stress hormones are released increase our blood pressure and heart rate. Unsurprisingly, this stimulation can cause an increase in facial redness. But it's not only distress that can prompt redness, but also extreme emotions. Blushing and flushing from emotions such as embarrassment and anger occur because adrenaline is secreted and dilate our capillaries. So what can we do about this? First off, it's important to identify when we're experiencing stress. Many of us don't even realize when we're stressed but other signs such as insomnia, irritability, addiction, or procrastination are present. This isn't easy, but one way to help out is by taking time to listen to our minds and bodies throughout the day. A daily mindfulness practice can do wonders for our skin and, of course, our overall wellness. If you don't know where to start, today there are so many mindfulness and meditation apps that can help you even when you're on the go. You may also find breathing particularly helpful. One breathing exercise that may aid rosacea sufferers is called shitali. This is considered a cooling pranayama, said to temper aggravated emotions and irritability. To do this, get into a sitting position. Roll your tongue, making a tube out of it, curling it up the sides. This acts like a straw from which you will breathe through. Inhale through the mouth, sucking through the straw, then exhale through the nose. You can almost feel the cold breath entering your body and excess heat being released out. Breathing for your skin may sound funny, but a holistic approach to beauty helps address root causes and as an added bonus, supports your overall wellness journey. This has been Pure Beauty with Dr. Kristen Ma. Learn more and ask questions about holistic beauty and their wellness centers through their Facebook page at pureandsimple.ca. This segment should not take the place of medical advice. Always talk to your health care provider about personal health concerns.
1: The tonic is brought to you by purely natural. their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble grit-free and great tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored which is great with orange juice the mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor Purica. Purica wants you to turn its protein into your power, a blend of the finest vegan protein and the antioxidant powerhouse that is the pure chaga mushrooms. Purica Power features ingredients and enzymes designed to optimize digestion and absorption. Unlike many protein powders, Purica Power tastes great with water and mixes easily. It's available in chocolate, vanilla, and natural unflavored. From the Purica family to yours, Purica Power is a new way to make the most of every day. It's all part of the Purica commitment to making a positive difference in the lifestyle of its customers. Ask your favorite health food store for Purica Power Vegan Protein. Or visit Purica.com. Purica. Nature. Science. You.
3: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
1: Andrea Warehunt is a writer, actress, and former sex worker. She's a peer outreach worker with Maggie's, Toronto sex workers' action project. And her acclaimed book, Modern Whore, A Memoir, is available at modernhorror.com. Welcome to the show, Andrea.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So... We're here to talk about the psychological impact of working in the sex trade. And, you know, I brought you into the show because you better than anybody else would know what it's like to be out there, right? Mm hmm. From a psychological perspective, what was the most difficult part of the work that you did?
0: The most difficult part of the work is not being able to tell people about the work. Yeah. It's I, about having those experiences, whether they're good or sometimes rarely bad experiences and not being able to disclose those experiences to my closest friends and family.
1: Yeah, I I would imagine like in and of itself, it's isolating doing the work that you're doing, you know, without support. And then not being able to just sort of come home and you know like uh, if I have a rough day and believe me my rough days are different than those rough days I work <laughs> in my basement in front of a computer so we're talking about an entirely different level of rough day but you know just being able to sort of share it with somebody yeah. uh, is obviously helpful just for your own peace of mind
0: for sure I mean I was very fortunate because I had a partner who knew what I was doing all my close friends knew eventually I came out to my parents like I had that support system did you really I really did yeah and just Despite having that incredible support system, I still felt the negative effects of stigma.
1: So, you were, you were with somebody when you were a sex, sequ- really? For how many years?
0: We're still together. Wow. Yeah. So, for the first two years of our relationship, I was a full service escort. And then I quit and I've published this book. I worked with him on a farm and we're almost at seven years.
1: Congratulations. Thanks. That's an understanding partner. That's an
0: excellent partner. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That would honestly, candidly, I I mean, I don't know that I could do it. It would be difficult. Yeah. It would be a challenge like for the ego and just sort of understanding the drive to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate that he has a healthy understanding that sex work is work.
1: Right. And it must have been hard for you, too, though, right? Because you're in an intimate relationship with somebody on a personal level, and then You know your work is also quite personal right
0: yeah it's personal but it's also a job and and you had to do my job which is really just uh, you know the ultimate people-pleaser job
1: yes I would say say so
0: (laughs) I've always been good at customer service so you know it's it's just a matter (laughs) of making good conversation having interesting experiences you know 10 to 15 minutes of sex generally speaking and then at the door you know a few hundred dollars richer right and that's a job that accrues benefits not only for me, but for the people around me because I, I'm not uh, impoverished and I have the flexibility of time to do the things that I want to do with the people I love.
1: How did it make you feel about people, though? I mean, did it change your perspective of people in general? I know how I feel about people and <laughs> when I interact with them. You're interacting with them on an entirely different level.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not just interacting with people. I'm interacting primarily with men. Right. Right. And so I learned a lot about men. and think I think what I learned surprised me because I found the vast majority of them quite kind and yep. respectful, mm-hmm. and caring, and interested in me as a person, which defies all these stereotypes, that we are fed about the people who buy sex.
1: These were regular customers.
0: Yeah, yeah. Often they would become part of my regular clientele. Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting. Like right. any uh, people-person job, it can take a toll, a mental toll, for sure, a physical toll, to use your body in a specific kind of way right. um, as a job. So it found... After my shifts, I was quite tired and exhausted because it's just a lot of energy.
1: So, what did you do to, to get your energy back? I mean, was it a diet, exercise thing? Was it like did you turn your mind to that sort of thing?
0: Absolutely. No, yoga was an essential part of of what I used as a form of self care. Really, right? And and keeping myself flexible in body and mind, and. Lots of stretching, lots of breathing exercises. Right. Back to that other comment. I, I don't think that it might surprise you and your listeners that I don't hate people as a result of being right. a sex worker. In fact, I have more faith in humanity after having been a sex worker.
1: You're better adjusted than I am. That's for sure. I think you, I think, I think you like people better than I do.
0: I think so I do. Yeah. I, I,
1: you know, which means I probably I would not make a good a good sex worker. I think, you know, I, I have to cross that off my list. I, I don't think I could do it. Did you have a network of people that that you knew that were in the industry that you could sort of talk about what you were doing with them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I worked at an agency, so I was able to occasionally talk to the other girls. I was able to have very candid conversations with my madame.
1: Did you have? Mm -hmm. Like, you weren't freelance. No, no.
0: I worked at an agency. So, I yeah, I had pretty strong relationships with her and with a few of the girls. And there is just a a huge community of sex workers online that I could, you know access the wealth of information that's been shared by them and feel supported and contribute if I ever felt the need to. So yeah, there is like a giant support system of sex workers out there.
1: When we were chatting before the interview, you were referring yourself to yourself as an escort and and we were discussing sort of the elements of that including what's known as the girlfriend experience, right? Which is, can you explain briefly what th- what that is?
0: Okay, well, the girlfriend experience, I mean, yes, it does involve conversation, but right. in a more technical level, it means that the provider is willing to kiss the client, and then it also generally means that a blowjob is offered without a condom, technically speaking.
1: I didn't, okay, that I didn't, <laughs> yeah, that I I didn't, didn't. know. I didn't know that was, I thought it was more, uh, like it was almost like, a, not a kabuki, but more like a courtesan in the sense that you know, you're, you're going out. You know, you're maybe going to a restaurant. There's more of a relationship element to the transaction as opposed to just a sexual one, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's not to say that girls who offer the girlfriend experience don't just have those hour-long appointments in which you know, right? They're in and they're out. But yes, the ideal of the girlfriend experience is that these are multi-hour appointments where the client goes out for dinner with the provider and uh, you know goes back you know goes to a bar goes to their hotel room you know like there's an event
1: right so you know i'm going to draw an analogy here and it's i'm going to be up front with you it's a t- it's a terrible one yeah. but you know part of what i do for the magazine is you know i will go to trade shows and i will have to walk the floor for like 7 8 hours and shake hands Where is this going? and, and, and <laughs> exactly yeah, i know Wait, there's a big build up here right so so i would imagine with the girlfriend experience like it's not part of the core work and yet it is right i mean it's something extra that you're doing it's part and parcel of being in the sex trade if you're doing that, but it's a very different skill set. It's a very different offering that you're doing, right? There's an emotional element to it that isn't there with the pure act of sex. And that has to take a toll on you too, right? I mean, you said you're a people person, but still, isn't that true?
0: Sure. I mean, everyone needs their downtime. You know, every extrovert needs their introverted moments to balance themselves out. Right. Yeah. The courtesan, I think, is like the ideal. It's like the peak sex worker. It's, you know, the high class escort is the top of the the food chain as far as the the sex work hierarchy is concerned. Her experience is going to be vastly different from the experience of people who are working on the ground level. Of course. And obviously, the person on the top is making a lot more money than the person on the bottom.
1: Well, let's talk about the people on the bottom because we only have a few more minutes. And, And I know the work that you're doing now. You're at Maggie's, right? Yeah. So, you're doing outreach for people in the industry, and we're talking like streetwalkers, perhaps, and, yep. and people who are getting their work on the internet. So, what are the, some of the challenges that you're seeing with people in that part of the industry?
0: Well, I would say that criminalization is a major impediment to them accessing healthcare services, for instance, or reporting crimes perpetrated against them by violent johns to the police. Right. <laughs> Criminalization means that there's absolutely no way they can report a crime to the police. Right. Everything is sort of self-regulated. The girls distribute there's an organization called the Bad Date Coalition oh, wow. which distributes a monthly like pocket-sized zine with a catalog of bad clients.
1: So you know if somebody's reaching out to you who may be a bad character, you don't have to take that work, Exactly.
0: And I mean, those are initiatives started by sex workers themselves to protect each other because we can't rely on cops to protect us. Right. So, yeah, the effects of criminalization are very deep, and so are the effects of stigma. It means that people can't get the help that they need because they're afraid of being judged or, worse, being arrested.
1: Okay. Well, I'd love to have you back on the show to come back and and talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing now to help uh, the sex workers now that you're out of the industry at that end. Will you you come back and do that? Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomeradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Naomi Bussin, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic magazine. Tonic is available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at www.tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll bust myths about bone and joint health. We'll discuss how mindfulness can help your sex life, the top tips for losing weight around your middle, and blood maintenance and conservation. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week.
3: Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement.